0: Hi, this is Patrice Rush, and I'm here to talk. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Short and sweet. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. And it's a real honour to be able to chat with you. Thank you. And I'm very excited to hear about your musical journey. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought perhaps the best place to start would be at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And if you could give me a sense of your kind of upbringing, your musical upbringing, and where it all started for you. Okay. Well, I started very, very young. I always liked music a lot. My parents
1: had me in a, a preschool. They both worked, and I had a younger sister. So she's six years younger. So for the first five years, I was by myself. And they uh, put me in this nursery school. And it was the teacher there, I think, that uh, recognized what she thought was a musical ability because I was kind of small as a kid and kind of shy. And But whenever we did any anything to music, any kind of singing or any kind of dancing, Um, that's when, you know, she noticed the big spark and she told my parents about it and they said, okay, well, what do we do? And they found a program that was designed for small children. Um, but it was actually a graduate course for, uh, music education, music educators, uh, music education people who were going to teach, uh, at the university of Southern California. So I was part of, part of this uh, little kids group that they were observing things about these kids as far as their musicality and where it c- came from and how to uh, use some of those concepts to be able to teach young kids. And uh, I was in this program for a lot, a number of years. And at five, you get introduced to an instrument. I was three at the time.
0: Whoa, that's it, so young. Uh, he's very young. <laughs>
1: but we were singing and dancing and waving scarves to music and being taught musical concepts at a child's level of feeling the music and being able to communicate about it a little bit while they were making major discoveries about certain theories about how they might go about teaching kids and how early childhood development was part of that. Anyway, at five, I started playing the piano and uh, played classical music because that was pretty much the vehicle to get that instrument worked out. But on At my house, I heard jazz and R&B, pop music, the music from television, our radio or TV was on all the time. And so I heard a lot of music, and that's the kind of stuff I wanted to do, the stuff that was in there. Who's doing that? So um, as time went on, as the years went by, continued to go to my piano lesson all the time, but um, I'm growing up here in Motown and Sly Stone and the Beatles and picking out that stuff on the piano, too and realizing more and more that the vocabulary of music that I wanted to do was more in the popular music end, the contemporary music end. And I went to high school, and it was an all-black high school, and the teachers were pretty progressive, and one in particular who was in the music department used the idea of the music to help to teach us history, social skills by giving us information about jazz, which is America's classical music. Mm. And that was invented by people that look like us. And that helped us be able to understand more the value of that music and how it was the popular music of its day and how the information that we could have um, to add to the vocabulary of the traditional music and Western European tradition that... I had been taught through the piano, could also now be augmented with some other information. And uh, that's when I knew I wanted to have music as a career. And uh, I really wanted to write. I wanted to write for film and TV. I wanted to compose, orchestrate, all that stuff. But I didn't have the path. I didn't know how to get there. And long story short, living in Los Angeles, that's where I grew up, there were lots of studios and recording sessions and television and motion picture sessions and I got to go to a few of them just to watch and observe what those musicians did at the same time I was loving dance music and understanding more and more about how that was put together and at the same time I was also enamored with jazz and with what that part of the tradition was as far as uh having you know access to that musical vocabulary so it was like a, a, a chameleon, you know, wanting to do all of these different things and trying to find ways to be able to do that. And I think that's what a lot of my music reflects, many different layers and ideas.
0: Well, absolutely. You've you've moved seamlessly through such different worlds, different musical worlds. So what was it that actually made you decide that you wanted to start making music of your own? And, and were there any particular Influences any particular? Was there a eureka moment where you <laughs> decided that actually you were gonna start to make your own music?
1: Well, I always liked, uh, like I said, composing and songwriting and things like this. I didn't, I didn't think of it as a an offshoot of anything other than just being creative and having that I, the idea that there would be certain ways that I would like to see th- certain things put together. But I also knew that uh, from the standpoint of skill, how uh, creative that could be to develop your skill to be able to offer and to serve you know other people's musical moments too and I liked that I liked the idea of collaboration a lot so in wanting to become this versatile player who could do it, it whatever anything that's that was the goal at least because I love so much music and many different kinds of uh, Musicians had sort of entered my life, you know, either through people that I met or played with or was asked to play with, um, studio work, my peer group. I just wanted to be involved. I just wanted to play. So I didn't really have that moment of saying, well, I'm going to do my music. It was, an, again, an offshoot of service. As I was leaving high school, I participated in a jazz festival. Our high school, we used to do a lot of battle of the band competition type of things. And this particular year, there was a combo division, a small group division. The The band didn't win, but the combo did. And we, the idea was that you win a spot on this major jazz festival, which was the Monterey Jazz Festival.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's big for a high That's school band. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So in 1972, my combo played this festival. And it was from that that people heard me and saw me in the context of playing jazz and wanted me to consider signing to a label. That was the last thing on my mind. I was going to go to college. And uh, how, old, know, how old are you at that point? I'm like, you know, what are you, 17 around that time? Wow. And I just said, well, you know, I, my aspiration was to be good enough to be able to play with these wonderful names of established artists. But I didn't think I was there yet and I had stuff to do. But I also needed money to go to school. So signed the small deal at um, Fantasy Prestige and did three uh, albums for them. And I was allowed to pretty much experiment um, to do what I wanted to do, you know, in the context of what it is that they were getting as this jazz musician that they were signing.
0: I remember, I mean, because I always knew you for your more R&B soul disco kind of stuff. And um, I used to work in a record shop and I remember discovering Prelusion and Before the Dawn and being like, is that the same British Russian? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And, you know, to this day, Jubilation is actually one of my favourite songs. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did that? I mean, yeah, a lot of people don't necessarily know that you had this kind of former life as a jazz pianist Mm -hmm. and as a... A composer and a band leader so how did that first record come about and what was the sort, of, what was the process like of putting it out there the very first one perlusion yeah uh well it was not really glamorous
1: or or ter- terribly uh abnormal uh i put together some pieces to play for the ensemble that i needed for the recording that they wanted and uh they got the musicians together some of whom i knew and um We went in and we recorded. And back then, there was very little in the way of, uh, for me at least, overdubbing. We did everything live. And then there was one track on that album where we did a lot of overdubbing. Because the technology then, synthesizers were Mm -hmm. relatively new, you know, as far as being used in, uh, in, in, in music like this. So that experimentation with those colors and that sound. So I had this song on there called Puttered Bobcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Great name (laughs) And uh, it was really allowed me to experiment And became sort of a, I guess, uh, a turning point Because it was kind of a clue as to where I was going to probably go To take the aspect of music that I love Which was based in groove uh, But be able to experiment with these different orchestral colors Now with synthesizers as part of that palette And recording and overdubbing in the process uh, because I did most of the parts, you know, one by one. So that was very different from some of the other stuff that was on the album. The next couple of albums that I did for Prestige began to kind of, I guess, utilize, looking back now, utilizing more and more of those concepts of being able to stay part of the tradition of jazz, which involved improvisation and, and being in the moment, but also... The idea of music having a it having a particular personality uh, and each song having a particular uh emotional content that I was looking for and that experimentation also ultimately led to me playing other instruments on the records and then ultimately to um, doing some singing.
0: I wanted to ask you about about that period because. I mean, part of the reason I was so kind of shocked and, and amazed to discover your early records was because there were very few female composers um, making that kind of music at that time. And you know, were you conscious of that at the time? And you know, you were sort of leading all male bands. <laughs> and you know, what was that? What was that like?
1: Great question. And no, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of it in that way. I mean, obviously, you know, you look around and you say, oh. Okay, I'm the only female in the room right now. But that at the time wasn't unusual because I think most of my life um, the music was genderless. It was about the being able to make musical moments and that most of my peers that happened and they, were, and they happened to be male. At that particular time, I think there was an awareness, at least among very young men, that they just wanted the stuff played, you know. And if the girl in the room can get it played, then fine. It didn't, it wasn't a thing. In fact, I was very protected by my immediate Mm -hmm. peers. They really looked out for me, you know, because they knew I was very serious about the music. And um, I think I tried to project the idea that, you know, we were all studying together a lot and playing together a lot. So I had that environment of my own peers treating me really respectfully and that informed what I thought it was gonna be like everywhere else, because I had never experienced anything any differently. So even though I would walk into a room of you know, professional musicians, many of whom many of were older than me, or something like this, I, I didn't feel less than confident that I would rise to the occasion of whatever was needed musically. Mm-hmm. And I think that that fed my ability to focus on what I was there for, for the music, and I was it was much later in my career that I realized that you know other people's baggage about being female, being, being female or being black or being short or whatever their given phobia was, um, that that could have an influence on the music because up to that point it had not had an influence on it at all.
0: That's amazing to hear that, you, you know, you felt completely supported and respected. And that probably gave you the confidence to be able to move through some of those different Absolutely. spaces as your career. Absolutely. Developed. I mean, I
1: was aware I didn't see a lot of women. Mm. And the ones that I saw, you know, we would talk. But that wasn't really the subject of what we would be talking, speaking about. So, yeah, I think, I think I, the biggest thing I could say was that at home I got support. And with my immediate peer group, I got a lot of support.
0: So, so, so there was this kind of gigantic shift in a way in your career after those early albums on Prestige from continuing the arrangement and composing and songwriting but going from being an instrumentalist to a, to a singer. <laughs> how, did that, how did that come about? Was that a kind of conscious decision? Had you been singing the whole way through? Um, where, where, did that, where did that come from? Well, I liked
1: to sing. I couldn't consider, I didn't consider myself a singer. I was an instrumentalist who happened to sing. I think the turning point was when I was signed to Electra. They were actually looking to find ways to maintain uh, certain aspects of the jazz tradition, but to do it in a more commercial way. Electra before that had been a very, very, very strong uh, pop label they had Linda Ronstadt and Motley Crue and the Eagles you know so that was their that was their thing but they were trying to expand and they were also trying to expand into the black market and musically the trend that I guess they saw coming was this mix of music that had commercial sensibilities but also maintained a certain tie to uh, the jazz aesthetic So I was signed around the same time as a person named Grover Washington Jr., as um, Lenny White, as uh, Lee Rittenour, Donald Byrd and the Blackbirds. I was signed around that. Dee Dee Bridgewater. Oh, wow. We were signed right around the same time. And if you notice the common thread in there is that all of us have some roots in the jazz tradition, but we're, you know, at the time also young enough to do, some of these other things which were also part of our tradition that were not superimposing. It didn't feel like it was superimposing one thing on another. It was kind of organic and just finding a a, a platform to be able to do that. And Electra was attempting to give us this platform. So singing more was something that they suggested as a way to sort of bridge the two things. And that was fine. You know, I said, okay. I had the budgets to be able to continue to write. So I did uh, all the string and horn arrangements. So this was feeding for me a larger purpose from the standpoint of me, the orchestrator, me, the producer, you know, me having this access to this uh, bigger palette, you know, to be able to uh, express and explore some other kinds of music.
0: And and how do people receive that? Because I know a lot of the jazz musicians who, Made their careers um, on more traditional sounds in the sixties and seventies. When they turned to this fusion, and um, when they started to incorporate these more soulful, synthesized elements, you know, they were they were some of them were really crucified and, and criticized oh, yeah. for selling out. Oh yeah. Did you experience
1: that? I took a little bit of heat. Yeah, I took a little bit. People were confused, and it's unfortunate that that confusion was created by I think a very limited. Marketing strategy and marketing system that record companies formerly had Where, you know, you would be in a particular bin You're in the jazz bin, you're in the R&B bin, you're in the pop bin, you're in the rock bin You know, when people go into record shops, they don't want to be confused They want to just go to their area that they like and they want to find who they like And most people don't really operate that way in real life Now those barriers are all gone you hear something that you like, you're gonna turn your friend onto that thing. You're not gonna worry about what category it fits in. You're gonna just check this out. They're gonna like it or not like it, and they're gonna tell somebody and they're gonna tell somebody and they're they're not gonna worry about what category it fits. So I was the marketing person's nightmare because my music could fit it had had some aspect of all of those different bends. I was part of each one of them, and they didn't know where to put it, and. Rather than modify a strategy, a marketing strategy to accommodate people who were, especially of my generation, who were a part of many different musics, authentically part of many different musics and styles. You know, they forced us to have to choose Mm -hmm. and having to make that choice or apparently make that choice. You know, yeah, there were people who were really upset about it and um, received I received some. Critiques that were pretty pretty harsh from the jazz community thinking I had turned my back, but the music was too, still too jazz to be pop, still too black to be pop, still too this to be that. You know, it was all these in-betweens. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a horrifying period. I think that the thing that saved me was I had been allowed to do the music that I wanted to do. So I was always having fun. And I was always grateful that the audience didn't buy in all of that. And they accepted the music that I had offered. They accepted that because it felt good to them. There was something in in it that resonated with them. And that really is the most important thing.
0: I think it probably stems from what you've talked about. I think there's a difference where you are the kind of soul custodian and creator of your own music as opposed to a vocalist that's something that you know that, that a record label is trying to push and trying to contort into different shapes when you are you know the the creator and you are the arranger and the songwriter and the instrumentalist and the vocalist it's probably much easier to kind of stand your ground and do what feels right to you you touched on it slightly that you know when you started moving through different musical worlds to you know that the, the kind of jazz, scene that you found yourself in originally, that you got a different response. I mean, sometimes there is more room for vocalists, female vocalists, than there are female instrumentalists. So what was it like when you started to navigate this kind of more poppy R&B
1: Yeah, it's very different. It's very different. The idea, I think, um, and some of the stereotypes of what singers are about, I got to experience what people would immediately think. Whereas, you know, if they only knew that side of me as a as a vocalist let's say they would talk to me differently and sometimes it wasn't pleasant you know where there's this idea that singers just saying they don't know anything Mm. and I guess you know that can be up up to a certain point I guess that 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 could be supported you know but that wasn't me so when people would say certain kinds of things I could and I could check it or say wait a minute (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a different (laughs) it was a little bit different then. So I was like, wow, that's interesting. Also, I think that there are other things, though, that you learn, for example, in the more popular music side of things, there is a little bit more attention to certain kinds of details in terms of the performers to kind of protect their energy, to kind of protect uh, their environment. Now, some of it goes way, way too far where, you know, the room has to be painted a certain color. And <laughs> so, you know, but the idea is that people will buy, they buy into that on the basis of the artist needs this to do that. Mm. Where with the jazz musician, it's like you're lucky if you have a dressing room. <laughs> so to see all of these different things and how the music and the perception of the, the artist and the perception of what's important can definitely frame the experience you know that I had and to see it from different sides you know because I've been on a lot of different Mm. sides of it which has been so cool because in the background uh, there's a lot of things that are going on to make the foreground look and feel a certain way and uh, some of that is taken advantage of by the by the foreground, like that. Sometimes they forget that they're not a. They're not in it alone. So there's a lot of good things that have come from it. For me, it's an adventure, and uh, I enjoy every minute of it. Really.
0: How did you find that sort of being? Because you know, when you are behind an instrument, it's a different experience. You're not having to sort of be there at the front of the stage, where everyone's staring at you. Um, you know, you're you're channeling this musical flow through an instrument that's not your own body. Mm. I mean, did you find that a difficult shift? Or, I mean, going from to being on the center of the stage as a vocalist? Well, you know, because I was an instrumentalist, and, uh,
1: first and foremost, the idea is that you try to get to the point that your instrument is part of your body. I forget about the keyboards when I'm playing, and I know whole lot other people do too, where they're just hearing me through that. Now, obviously, it's a physical thing, and it's in front of it, it, it does stand between you and, and your audience, or you know, I try to even place myself on a, on a stage when I can, in such a way that, that, that I sit to, I prefer to sit to the side with the tradition of you being able to not only see the keys, but to see me and to see my body. I'm not always successful at that because it depends on the venue size and, and all that type of thing. But the idea is to bring you into that space. You know, I'm going to come to you with the music and I'm going to hope that in that in then in receiving that, then as an audience, we're working together for an experience because that's what music is supposed to be. It's supposed to be experienced. As a vocalist, that experience is a little bit different. There's less stuff in between us, probably. You have the benefit of being able to relate better because my body, it looks like yours And so when I move or something like that, you might be moving too. And there's not this other mechanism that you don't necessarily do that you're having to cut through. So there's all that other kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the music itself and the idea of its presentation and what you bring to it in terms of your joy, that's what translates the best.
0: So... Could you tell me a little bit about your process um, when you go to write a song? You know, what what do you have to do? Do you lock yourself away? Is it <laughs> is it a collaborative process? Is it something that's very intuitive and free form? Is it something that's more structured? How do you how do you go about your creating? Mm-hmm. I can say yes to
1: all of that. <laughs> <laughs> it varies. It really really does. Um, sometimes it comes out of just. Working with other people and talking and just playing together, and then an idea gets sparked and you continue to develop that idea. Sometimes I'm by myself, you know, and it might have to do with something somebody said or something that I did or or something I'm thinking about. Other times it may come from, you know, an outside source that says, "Listen, I I need an, a song for an assignment. I need a song for this, for this." motion picture or i need a song for this young artist that i'm doing or something like that so sometimes it's like a song with a deadline you know give me something you know something, turn it out turn yeah. it out <laughs> exactly yeah so it comes from a lot of different places i think that the biggest the biggest thing that people don't understand is that that process is aided by by having skill. And I know that there are a lot of people out there saying, no, you know, you just flow and it just, yeah, you can do that too. But that's a heck of a gamble that what it is that you're going to do may or may not result in something that really reflects where you're coming from. Sometimes having some skill gives you that point of departure. Or if you get stuck allows you to be calm enough to know that you'll find your way out of it because you know that there's different things that might be possible to kind of restart that that creative flow and creative engine so learning about the thing that you love to do learning about it and learning about what other people's processes might be working with different people collaborating with people that's a big deal because it informs you in a way of where you are, but it also gives you the idea that there's all these other possibilities just on the basis of somebody else having maybe a certain slightly uh, different point of view that might spark the third idea, which wouldn't have happened with either one of you alone.
0: So it's all good. You've had a very long and incredibly inspiring career in that you've managed to kind of keep reinventing yourself in a way that feels like it's had a natural flow to it and I think it's always really inspiring inspiring when you meet artists who haven't just like stuck to the same thing but have kind of um, pursued something that's kept them growing and changing, but a lot has changed in the course of your your career. And I, I wonder um, you know, what, what you think some of those changes are. And for young musicians who are perhaps starting off today, you know, what advice might you give them or you know, how do you feel like things have changed since you started off?
1: I think the biggest thing that has changed for me is that all of those categories have kind of like broken down. That's awesome. That's exciting to me, but it's also challenging because now when all the categories are broken around, you have a lot of stuff that's out there. Everybody has access to music. Everybody has access to recordings. See, that used to be the, the prize for, for, for being really good and for having something to say. The recordings were documentation of that movement, that trajectory towards something that was worth documenting. But now everybody has access to it, meaning that you have some stuff out there that is really not great, standing right alongside stuff that is just incredible. And audiences are now having to find their way towards whatever is good, better, best, you know, as opposed to radio maybe dictating things going a certain way or marketing dictating things always going a certain way. So it's challenging for the artist because for the young artists, that can be very, a very mixed message. It can be very confusing. It can take you off your course. So I tell my students the first day of school, I remind them that why are you doing this? Because if the idea is because you want to be famous or something like this, uh, that's cool. But fame is a result of something. So what do you what? What do you want to do? Let's not talk about the other part. Why are you doing this? What what is at the core of you doing this? And if the idea because you love the music and or, or, and you love the idea of being able to uh contribute to that in some way as you as you navigate and learn all of the different possibilities, if that's at the heart of what it is, you're on the right track. Because the other part is in this day and time you have to be your own motivator. You have to be part artist, part entrepreneur, part, you know, business person, part collaborator, part psychologist, part, you know, you've got all these different aspects to keep going while you're developing. And it's and it's hard. It's difficult. And there're no promises at the end of it that it's going to make you Super successful if your definition of success is getting a Grammy Award or being famous and playing Wembley. If that's what you're shooting for and that's the only thing that's motivating you, let me tell you, it won't be enough and it won't probably happen very easily and there'll be no joy in the process. Mm. So The idea is to get in touch with what I like to call your why. Why are you doing it? And this isn't anything. Because when you figure out why you're doing something, that spirit, that motivation means you have to do it. It's just because that's part of who you are. And how you're going to do it and what you're going to do will come together and reveal itself because you're in tune with why you're doing it in the first place. So that has served me. And uh, that's what I try to pass on to You know, young people who are really interested in something, it doesn't have to look like it did for your parents or everybody else. Our our careers as creatives are almost like um, uh, portfolios of activities that are all related to our why, but that may take on different iterations. So people say, well, why are you out playing with so-and-so? You should be doing your own thing. Cause I like playing with so-and-so and (laughs) And I am doing my own thing playing with so-and-so and And I'll have another opportunity to play and do my music at that, at that moment, at that time. And then so-and-so will be playing with me or whatever it is. The idea is I want to make music with great people who have real intelligence about where it is that they're going and an attitude towards serving the music and enjoying life.
0: So excitingly you've got this compilation coming out on Strut and it's you know, you're going around touring and performing this music to, I imagine, quite a different audience to who it might have been, you know, back in, 70, in 79. <laughs> um, you know, what does that feel like f- to you to kind of n- to recognize that your music is still continuing to touch people and not just of the original generation um, that may have been, you know, there around when it was coming out for the first time, but to a younger generation who've got this from their parents, perhaps. Right.
1: That's like the biggest compliment. I think any songwriter, or composer, you know, you you hope that their efforts and will be relevant long after you've recorded it or written it. That's the ultimate compliment about something within it that resonates deeper than any chart number or number of uh hits or likes. <laughs> something that resonates deeper than that. So, that's exciting for me. Haven't done uh any touring specifically to the compilation just yet, but we are int- intending to, which would be really cool, and to be able to perform that music, you know. Uh I do at home in the States, you know, occasionally do sessions and things and and, and special concerts where I do perform that music. So I'm aware of what that feels like and it's awesome to see the mom and the kids all groove into the same thing. It's really cool. And uh, whenever I'm out playing, people always tell me, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I've, I I've know your music and I've played this or, you know, we do it in my band or I heard Men in Black and then somebody
0: said, listen to the Forget Me Nots, and they said, oh, my God, you know, so that that recognition is super.
1: It's really, really awesome.
0: I'm interested to know what is your favorite composition of your own. What's a favorite song that you've that you've written? Because you've obviously had songs that I mean, yeah, you mentioned The Men in Black, which was an incredible huge world hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, to a kind of crazy scale. But I mean, was that was that one of your favorites or is it a lesser known a lesser known number?
1: You know, I don't know that I have a favorite because each each song, you know, there I, it takes me right back to that day or that that time. Uh, that we recorded it or that it was written, so I don't know. It's kind of like I have, how do you choose your favorite child or something, <laughs> you know? I don't know. But I, 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 um, what's fun is to hear now people are sampling my music all the time. So I've heard all these different, you know, creative iterations of so many of my, my songs, which is kind of nice. And um, that I, what I think I take away is just, to, just a keep doing what I'm doing, which is to enjoy, enjoy it and try to do everything with a certain level of commitment and excellence that gives it an opportunity to be able to be inspiring to someone else.
0: So, so how did you feel when you were approached um, with a major, major Hollywood blockbuster (laughs) wanting to (laughs) remodel and reshape and recreate one of your, one of your best known songs? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's an interesting story. I, uh, I got This is back in the day, you know, so I got this letter in the mail from 20th Century Fox, the film company. And they said, oh, please give us a call to pick up your one-time payment of $2,000 for a small sampling of your song, Forget-Me-Nots, in this new motion picture called Men in Black. And I had seen the trailer. I go to the movies a lot. I had seen the trailer to Men in Black, and it it wasn't in there yet. So I was like, oh, wow, I just saw the trailers, the Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. This is going to be great. I said, wow, well, they're going to use part of my song. And they inserted, they had a cassette tape. And I said, so check it out. And then I put this cassette in and I started listening. And I said, wait a minute. This is not small. <laughs> this is not a small thing. This is a big thing of a major use of this song. So I called my attorney and I said, well, I don't even know what to do. He says, okay, make a copy of the tape. And send it to me. And uh, I'll, I'll call you as soon as I get it. So, you know, you wait a couple of days. Cause we didn't have FedEx then.
0: This is before mp This is before MP3s. Is before MP3s. <laughs>
1: FedEx, no MP3s, nothing. So I waited a couple of days and he says, okay, this is a, a copyright issue. You need to be sharing in the ownership of this song as a co-writer a major contributor, as a matter of fact, and I think that you should ask for half. And I said, okay. What did I know? I said, well, do you think you'll get it? He says, no, but I think we should ask for it because that that would be the right thing to do. So we did. And, of course, the the film company says, absolutely not. Of course we're not going to do that. So I, I just left it to my lawyer, and he says, well, then you can't use her half. Hmm, now that's the whole music. That's all the music. That's us, you know. <laughs> exactly. That's us playing on the track. That's yeah. the original track of "Forget Me Nots" with the new vocal that you know Will Will uh, Smith had, you know, and, and everything. But everything is the same. So if you took that out, you wouldn't have that at all. And this is like weeks away from this movie being released so I don't know whether that just sat on somebody's desk for too long and they didn't deal with it or if they thought I was really just going to go get that one time payment but we got half of that copyright so that really was a major you know talk about life lessons it's like you know learning that the music and the use of it has its own value even aside from that the value that it had given me. Now, Forget Me nots has been this kind of lesson uh, moment for me over and over. I'm going to backtrack before it came out as Men in Black um, to when I released it. The record company didn't like it. It almost, by today's standards, it wouldn't have come out because they didn't like that whole album. Straight From the Heart was not received well by the record company. In fact, they told me, we don't hear anything on this, so we could do anything with. Now, this is album had had Forget Me Nots" on it, Remind Me was on it, Number One was on it. All of these things that later became like big, big hits for me. Part of the business aspect of understanding what you're doing is being able to stand by the things that you really believe in. Um, and that's what we had to do because they had literally told us, we're going to put it out there, but we're not going to promote it at all. So we had to figure out how to get it in front of the people. That was the idea. It's like we can't make people like something that they don't like. But you got to give them the choice. And so that's what we did. I ended up having to pull my little savings out of the bank. Wow. <laughs> to buy three weeks of radio promotion just so that I would be sure that it would get in front of the people in the different regions of the United States. And it, it blew up. People loved it and... And it worked out. So that song has been a real uh, interesting piece of valuable information, aside from the music and it being fun to play, and, and people loving it, and, and and it being a little different from its for its time and all that type of thing. Um, it also taught us some lessons about how how to stand up
0: and stand by your own creations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And we're still having to fight that fight today, songwriters. You know, with the, with the advent of the, you know, what I consider to be positive aspects of being able to get music to people with downloading and things like this, it left, it left out of the equation the creators of the music. And that has to be part of it, too. So, you know, again, forcing us to stand
0: up.